Welcome to Calvary Chapel of Columbia, where we're unpacking God's truths one verse at a time. And now here's Pastor Tim with today's message. All right. Well, well, well. Um, just a couple other things before we get rolling in our study this morning. Um, I don't know if you noticed when you came in today, but there is a table set up right as you come into the entrance. It is Samaritan's Purse. Um, shoe boxes are set up for you to grab one of those if you want to take a couple or whatever you want to do. Just make sure you grab them, pack them, talk to them about where they're gonna, where we're gonna, when they need to be back here. I don't have that information, but um, Nancy Vincent is uh, and her husband Kenneth are overseeing that. So. Make sure you grab a, if you've never done Samaritan's Purse shoe boxes, man, they are such a blessing. I encourage you to go to Samaritan's Purse website and just watch testimonies of, uh, man, it'll wreck you. It's an awesome thing to see these kids. They, they say that most of these shoe boxes that go to the various places across the world, that these kids will only get one shoe box. And so it could be your shoe box that you pack for them. And so make sure you take extra care with that because these kids only get maybe one shoebox, you know, and, and they don't get Christmas presents and such. So um, what a blessing it is. And just to hear the testimonies of, of that. So grab a box on your way out. Talk to them about the delivery of those things back here and such. But I want to make sure you know about that. And uh, if you have a Bible, Revelation chapter 2. If you need a Bible, raise your hand and uh, we'll make sure you get one. Revelation chapter 2 this morning. Um, what an exciting book we are in, and uh, we are just getting started in the book of Revelation. We should finish up as soon as we're in heaven through the rapture, probably, but we'll see about that. We'll see if we, we get through the book of Revelation, but it's going to be an awesome time. So stand with me, Revelation chapter 2. We're beginning in verse 8. Jesus writing to Seven literal churches in this time frame, 795 A.D. or so. He's dictating this to the Apostle John. And we went through the letter that he wrote to the Ephesians yesterday, or last week. And today we're going to uh, look at the letter to the church in Smyrna, verse 8. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, The words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you're rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested. And for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We ask you to come by your Spirit and help us to rightly divide the word now, Lord. We ask you that it go forth in a way that is tangible and understandable to us. And so we pray you just... Lord, get any humanity out of the way that your spirit would just speak clearly. We depend on you. We look to you. We ask you to come and teach us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You see how I just totally took the pressure off me? I'm like, hey, I got nothing to lose here because the Holy Spirit's in control. How many of you guys were born, you know, were, were somewhat maybe middle A or, you know, young teenagers or, or beyond in the, mid, in the late 80s? Anybody in here? 
like six of you. No, no, no one else was like in your teenage to mid 80 in the in the late 80s. Just that's probably quite a few of you were. So you might recall that Nike did a campaign in the late 80s when they were launching their new cross trainer shoe. They had to have the right spokesperson to do that because it was a cross trainer. Now, some of you are like, yeah, we know what cross trainers are. Listen, in the late 80s, we had no idea what cross trainers were because they were launching cross trainers, right? Just like we didn't know what iPods were because they didn't have them. So here's the thing is they had to find the right guy to launch the, this marketing campaign. So they found a dude named Bo Jackson. Bo Jackson was kind of like one of the, the modern-day athletes that played both football and baseball in the same year. And so he was a beast of an athlete, and they, wanted, they, want, they, they launched this entire campaign, you know, basically showing that Bo knows sports, right? So any sport it was, they had Bo Jackson knows sports. Bo knows. That was the whole campaign. And so uh, this commercial that they put together... The first thing you see is, you know, Bo Jackson coming out and stuff. And then, and then they have these, these appearances of these various different professional athletes. One of them was Michael Jordan. So he, he's out there on the basketball court. You know, Michael Jordan, probably uh, the greatest basketball player to ever, ever live. And he says this, Bo knows basketball. I'm thinking, Bo doesn't know basketball compared to you. I mean, what does that have to do with anything? Right? And then you had uh, this group of cyclists. I don't even know who they are because I don't follow cycling. But... Maybe they're famous. I don't know. But there's a group of cycling people, and they turn to the camera, and they go, Bo knows cycling, right? And, and then the commercial takes a dark turn. Wayne Gretzky skates up to the camera, and you expect him to say what? Bo knows. And he goes, no. That's all he says, no. And he just shakes his head. <laughs> and, then it, and then it goes into a, a, a kind of a bit where you see Bo Diddley on a stage and Bo Jackson on a stage, and they're both playing guitar. One of them's actually playing guitar. The other one is not playing anything like guitar. It's, he's just hitting strings. And the music cuts out, and Bo Jackson's playing this solo that is so horrible that, you know, it would turn your stomach. And, and Bo Diddley looks, he gets on the mic, he looks over there, and he goes, uh, Bo knows Diddley. And then the commercial ends. So... I have no idea what that has to do with, uh, with uh, cross trainers, like playing guitar. But, but anyway, Bo Diddley was in there, so that was awesome. But I say all that to say, if you caught it in verse 9 here, notice Jesus' words. I know. I know your tribulation and your poverty. Jesus knows suffering. And it was this campaign that God launched through the apostle John you know, 95-ish A.D. to this church to help them understand that Jesus knows what they're going through. He understands the difficulties that they're going through. And what you need to know this morning is Jesus knows what you're going through. He knows. Jesus knows suffering. You know, he was tried and, and, and found, he, he was found faithful. He was gone through every kind of tribulation and trial that you could go through and yet he failed not but he understands I would say to a greater degree uh, what it feels like to be tempted and suffer than any one of us could ever understand because he didn't fail he went right through the temptation right through the suffering 
into victory. He knows the difficulties that surround temptation and suffering. The writer of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews 2, verse 18, for because he himself has suffered when tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. Now, sometimes we have this idea that, that Jesus cannot relate to the things that we're going through. Like Jesus was never put in this position. Oh, he was. He was put in that position. He was put in every position that you could ever be put in. Jesus will never ask you to go through something that he himself has never gone through. Do you know that? He's gone through every circumstance and situation that you could ever find yourself. He knows what you're going through. And in fact, I, I love what MacArthur says about this. He says, Jesus felt everything that we feel and more. For example, he felt temptation to a degree that we could not possibly experience. Most of us never know the full degree of resistible temptation simply because we usually succumb long before that degree is reached. But since Jesus never sinned, he took the full assurance of every temptation that came to him, he, and he was victorious in every trial. Jesus, in Hebrews 4.15, says, For we do not have a high priest who is able to sympathize with our, who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. No one will ever say in the history of the world, Jesus doesn't know what I'm going through. No one will ever say that because he does know what you're going through. And yet he Everything you've gone through, he did go through, and he overcame. He's sinless. He knows all things. But most of all, he knows suffering. Jesus knows suffering. That's the title of my message this morning. The greatest temptation that Jesus faced on this earth was the night of his betrayal. You know the story, Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Do you not see the temptation written in Scripture? where Jesus leaves his disciples who fall asleep, they're, they're unaware of what's about to happen, even though Jesus is telling them time and time again, hey, get ready, hey, get ready, and maybe that's a word for you today, hey, get ready. And Jesus walks a little bit further, and he falls on his face in temptation. Temptation is not sin, folks. The giving into temptation is sin. Jesus was tempted in the garden. It was perhaps the greatest temptation that he faced where he falls on the ground, crying out literally to his father, bleeding what it were, great uh, sweat of blood, you know. And it, it, was a, it was something that actually happened biologically in the body when someone was under such tremendous amount of stress. It's a condition where you literally sweat blood or blood, bloody type substance. You don't think he was tempted there? What was he being tempted to do? Walk away from the will of God. Walk away from the will of God. Jesus, in that moment, said, Father, if there's any other way that this cup can pass from me, let it, let it pass, but if not, your will be done. You see, Jesus understood, I'm willing to do whatever it, whatever it takes to accomplish your will. I will not violate your will. The greatest amount of suffering that Jesus suffered happened right after that. When he, went, when he was arrested, he was beaten brutally. Scourged with a cat of nine tails, flesh ripped off of his body. And then he was made to carry the, the cross up the, to, the, to the, the way to Golgotha. And, and there it was that he was pinned 
to this stake and he literally suffocated to death. Like that's like he would have to pull himself up on those spikes in order to breathe. That's the point of crucifixion. As you suffocate, you have you collapse as you get exhausted and you just you can't breathe. So in order to get a breath, you have to pull yourself up. The amount of suffering that Jesus faced, not only just physically, but see, we don't understand the cup that he was drinking in that moment either. The, the weight of the sin of the world on his shoulders as the father pours out his wrath on his son. The song, Here I Am to Worship, I'll never know what it cost for him to go to the cross or whatever that lyric is. But the point of it is, Jesus suffered tremendously. That was the greatest amount of suffering that he had ever suffered, and he did it victoriously, folks. Don't ever say, Jesus doesn't know what I'm going through. He knows exactly what you're going through. And, and let me tell you something. If you look to him, he will get you through it successfully. He will get you through it without departing from the will of God, without departing from whatever it is that the Lord has you to ha whatever he has you to um, deal with in that moment. Jesus will see you through it if you just look to him. If you cling on to him. If you hold on to Jesus. Paul tells us, listen, that that, that we will suffer if we desire to live a godly life. 2 Timothy 3.12. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Jesus said in John 15.20, Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Both of those, both of those scriptures are emphatic, meaning it's a certainty. It's not a matter of if, but when. That's what the scripture is telling us. Are we, are we going to suffer? Not in America. We're Americans. We don't suffer. <laughs> we pull together. We band together. Listen, anyone who desires to live godly will suffer persecution. You're like, dude, what are you trying to do? You're gonna, people are going to leave. You know, hey, this is the truth. The re reality of it is the, the scriptures tell us this, and if we're not prepared for that, then we're not ready. We're not ready. Jesus wants you to be ready. And, and we don't know what's about to transpire in our country, but what we know is Jesus knows, and he's going to see us through it. It doesn't matter what the circumstances are. What we know is Jesus is in every circumstance working everything out for the good of those who love him. So I'm not sitting at home every night watching the news going, oh, no, here it comes, here it comes. I don't care what happens because Jesus is with me, and he knows what I'm going to go through, and he's going to see me through it. Listen. Listen, here's the reality, folks, is that we are, it, the church, I say, in general, is in a state of fear. We're in a state of fear. We're, we're, we're in a state of, you know, the unknown. We're not sure what's going to happen. We see what's transpiring all around, not just our, our country, folks, but all around the world. And the church is in a state of fear. And we're going to see Jesus tell this church that's dealing Right, right as he's speaking, dealing with heavy persecution and persecution that's going to come, he's going to tell them, do not fear. Do not fear. Listen, the, 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 the reality of it is we'll see how we do that in a moment. But we have to wake up and realize that, listen, we have been incredibly blessed in the United States, folks. 
the church being established and us being able to have the freedoms that we have and to be able to worship the Lord the way that we get to worship him. And, you know, we get to come into this place and comfort and we get to open our Bibles up and we get to, uh, we get to learn about the Lord without any, any worry about anybody, bank, well, somewhat any worry about anybody running through the doors, right? Thank goodness we have Mike Lopez back there. He's going to take somebody out if they try and come in here. Our security team will take them down. But unfortunately, we have to, have, we have to, you know, the, the, our country is, has moved to that place where we have to have a security team, right? So we see the transition. But understand, as much as the enemy is at work, in, in and behind the scenes of our country, the Lord is too. And my Bible says he's greater. And in fact, my Bible says he wins. So I'm not worried about anything. I'm just living my life for Jesus today. I'm not worried about tomorrow. Jesus said, don't do that. Listen, some of us spend so much time in the what-ifs of life. That is such a stupid place to hang out. I'm sorry if that offends you. I'm not trying to offend you, but that is a terrible place to spend your time. Do not spend your time in the what-ifs. You spend your time in the present. Jesus said, you're not guaranteed tomorrow. We're not worried about the what-if tomorrow. We're worried about the moment. What does he want me to do now? As we walk through this um, text this morning, we're going to see four different things that Jesus knows about every person in the world and about every circumstance that we'll go through. And he knows suffering for sure, but there's, there's four specific things I want to point out to you here in our text. The first thing is that Jesus knows the cost to follow him intimately. He knows the cost to follow him intimately. Look at verse 8 there. It says, And to the angel of the church of Smyrna write, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. Jesus knows the cost to follow him intimately. He's not speaking here to this church from a position of not fully knowing what they're going through. He's been there. He's done it. He's gone through the things that they're going through. He knows what it costs because he paved the way, folks. The, the, the road that Jesus paved for us, he had to blaze the trail. And so on the trail, he, he knows what we, what we face. He knows what we're going to face, and he's a made a way for us in that. There, every time we come to, these, uh, to the introduction of these letters, Jesus is revealing himself to each church in a specific way. And in this, in this case, what Jesus reveals, who he reveals himself as in this introduction here, or, or, you know, as he addresses the correspondent, as I talked about last week, who is the angel of the church of Smyrna, who is a, probably the pastor of the church, right? Not necessarily an angelic being, but probably just a, it can mean messenger, just a messenger of the church, the pastor of the church. Jesus reveals himself in two different ways that they can relate with. The first thing that he says about himself is, I am God. Now, why do you think Jesus would in this moment as this church is suffering, reveal himself as Jehovah God. Why would he do that? He did, he did that uh, because one of the major things that they were facing in this culture in Smyrna was false idol worship. They, were, they, were, um, they had all kinds of idols. They were polytheistic. They, they worshiped many gods. But the one God that they were really called to worship, the false god, was the false god called Caesar. Smyrna was the very first um, city that was um, given the right 
to build a temple to Caesar. And so here in this place, uh, Jesus said, I know you're surrounded by all kinds of gods, but I want you to know that I'm the God of gods. I am, I am the first and the last. That is a, that is a, a title for Jehovah God. We find that in Isaiah chapter 44, verse 6. Uh, Isaiah writing says, Thus says the Lord, this is God speaking, the king of Israel and his redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there's no other God. There's no God. Jesus is establishing to this culture that says there's all kinds of gods, and in particular, Caesar himself is a God, that there is no God. He's the only God. He is the first and the last. Jesus is the great I am. He is Jehovah God. And, and we, we see... Uh, that playing out in scripture so many times. Jesus is Jehovah God. Now, Jehovah God, understand this. When you read the word Yahweh, or you understand what the word Yahweh is, right? Yahweh is Jehovah God. Jehovah is the English term that we use. In fact, the Hebrew has no real vowel, so we, we don't even really fully know how to pronounce that word. Um, but but the, the reality is, is we translate it into Jehovah Here's what you need to understand about Jehovah because you may get a knock on the door one day by somebody that says, hey, I'm, I'm Jehovah's witness, right? I'm a Jehovah, Jehovah's witness. What you need to understand about the term Jehovah is that Jehovah refers to the Trinity. Jehovah does not refer to a single being. It is a Trinity. It is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That is Jehovah God. So every time you read about Jehovah God, in the, the Old Testament, you're reading about the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. How do we know this? Because all we have to do is look at the very beginning of the scriptures in the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 1. And Jehovah made the world, right? In paraphrase, right? He made the world. We know Jehovah did. Uh, Genesis 1.1. And God created the heavens and the earth. That's, that word, God, Jehovah. Right? Genesis 1.26, you can draw a note from that place all the way down. Who is God? Defined for us down in Genesis uh, 1.26. Let us, plural, make man in our image. Plural. Jehovah God is a trinity. And that's what Jesus is saying. I'm the first and the last. You see, the Father could say the same thing. I'm the first and the last. The Spirit of God could say, I am the first and the last. Why? Because they're all God. Trinity, they all are, they're one, but they have three different functions. They're three different beings, three different people. And so we need to understand that when Jesus said that. Jesus is helping this church in Smyrna to come to a place to know that they can trust him because he is the God of gods. There is no God besides him. Not only that, but then Jesus goes on to make it very, very um, practical for them. He said, not only am I the God of gods, but I also became a man. So what he says here, he says, I'm also the one who died and came to life. Jesus not only mentions his deity in this introduction, but also his humanity. We know that, uh, you know, John 1, 1 in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God, right? And that's speaking about Jesus. We know that because in verse 14 of John 1, it says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld the glory of the only begotten, right? So Jesus is God. He's the word. Jesus is, is the word. But he became flesh. Why would God come down here? 
Why would God do that? I mean, it's crazy to think that the God of heaven would step out of eternity into time and space and say, hey, I'm going I'm to come into this world and become just like you. He took on the form of a man. He was clothed in flesh. He was born through a woman, a virgin birth. He became a man. I think Paul gives us some, some insight. I think it's pretty clear in Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 and 15. He says this, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, speaking to Jesus, having forgiven us all our trespasses. Listen. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and the authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Who's him? Jesus. Right? So, so here's what we learned here. Jesus came himself to make alive through the gospel you and I. Anybody who will trust in him. He wants to make us alive. What does that suggest about us prior to coming to Christ? We're dead. We're dead. We're not good people. We're not alive. We're dead. We're spiritually dead. When Jesus told Adam in the Garden of, in the Garden of Eden, he said, you, if you eat of this tree, you shall surely die. He surely did die the moment he bit into that, that fruit. He surely died spiritually. Immediately he was dead. No longer did he have the life that God put, that God breathed into him through the Holy Spirit. His, that, the Spirit was gone. He was dead. And then he began that process of physically dying, just like you and I. We, we, we were born into this world, dead people. Jesus came to make us alive. And, and he goes on here. He said that there was a record of debt that stood against us. That's our sin. All the things that we've done wrong in life, they're all being tallied up in heaven, folks. You don't skate on anything. God knows everything, and he's recorded everything. There's a record made with your name on it. Hey, Gabriel, pull me Tim Romero's file. And he's like, you mean the whole cabinet or just the, just the file? Which file do you want? Do you want 2019 or 20? What, you know, because that's the reality, folks. And here's the thing, the record that was stood against us, um, it couldn't just go away. It couldn't go away. Why? Because there was a judicial act that had to happen. God is a just God. And, you know, he has all kinds of attributes. He's, he's love and righteous and holy and all of these things, but he's also just. And that means that that's a legal term, folks. Like he has to abide by the own laws that he set in place because he's God. If he, if he departs from that, then he's no longer God. So there is a legal, a legal uh, you know, judicial act that has to happen in order for you and I to be forgiven. But did you see what happened here? Paul said that that happened at the cross. When Jesus Christ took your records and he nailed them to the cross with himself. And now, anybody who puts their trust in Jesus Christ, listen... Your debts are forgiven. I don't know if you've heard this over and over and over again to the point it has no impact, but that is awesome. That is awesome to, to, to think about your debts have been paid. Jesus Christ, he, he nailed into the cross. Not only that, but he made, he made the enemy 
a public spectacle as he hung on the cross. They, they tried to make him a public spectacle, but Jesus made the, the entire, uh, uh, you know, principalities and powers and rulers of darkness a, he made them a spectacle when he hung on the cross because he knew he was going to raise from the grave and victory had, would be had. Jesus came because nobody else could do this, folks. I love Tim Keller's summation of the gospel because it is so accurate and so clear that I don't think I could say it any better than this. He said, we are far more sinful than we ever dare believe. Wow. But we are more loved and accepted than we ever dare, dared hope. That is the truth, folks. Jesus came down because we are far more sinful than we realize. And he died on the cross and he rose again from the grave because he loves you far more than you could ever even imagine. That's the reality of the gospel. So Jesus wants these believers in Samaria to know that, you know, he, he understands where they're at right now. He understands the suffering that they're suffering. He's telling them, listen, I know the world that you live in, that there is this idea of, these false gods that you're supposed to bow down to and, and all this kind of stuff. And, you know, he understands the, the, the suffering that, that um, comes as a result of being a Christian because, remember, he's the first Christian. He understands what that means. He said, you know, a servant is not, a great, not greater than his master. Jesus was put in the same position these guys are put in. And he tells them, stay the course, walk the path. Jesus didn't promise us ease and comfort, folks. He, he didn't promise us an easy life, I should say. He did promise us comfort because he's the great comforter. But he did not promise us an easy path. And in fact, he says it here in Matthew 7, verses 13 and 14. He said, enter by the narrow gate. The gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter it are many. Enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow. And the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Jesus didn't promise us an easy path. He said, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. If we trust in him and all of those things. But he didn't promise you that you would have no, cir no circumstances in your life that would rock you. He didn't promise you that you would never encounter any trial or, or tribulation that would maybe flatten you to the ground. He didn't promise you any of that. In fact... What I read in the Old Testament is the master potter, when he, makes, when he sees that there's some flaws going on, he smashes the clay and then rebuilds it back up. It's called brokenness. And that's what God does in our life. And he's constantly refining us. That's why it's, it's difficult in the sense that, you know, we're going to heaven, but there's, there's, there's a lot of shaping going on on that path, folks. A lot of shaping, and it's good. And we trust the Lord when we're in those moments. And you know what? If you're not in a moment of shaping, you better ask yourself, what the heck is going on with me? Where am I at with the Lord? Because I don't know about you, he's always shaping me. The Holy Spirit inside of me is like, oh, Tim, don't do that. What are you doing? Last week, I'm like, how can I preach a message on this, man? You know, you have all these righteous deeds, but... Your heart is totally detached from what you're doing, and, and there's no love in you. And, and what, a, what a convicting idea that Jesus presents for us. Now he goes through here, and he's telling us, you know, hey, when you're persecuted, you just look to me. I, I will see you through everything. 
Um, what I know is that I would, I would rather suffer for Christ along the path that leads to life than be comforted by the devil on the road that leads to destruction. That's what I know. I, there, is no, no, there is no other way. Jesus is the only way. And he tells us to look to him, to stay on his path, no matter what it is that we're facing, and he'll see us through it. Not only does Jesus know the cost to follow him intimately, but he also knows the pressures of persecution personally. Look at verse 9. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are of a synagogue of Satan. You know, my eyes as I read the scriptures are immediately drawn to three things. Tribulation, poverty, and slander. And I'm thinking, lovely, where do I sign up? You know, I, 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 that's awesome. But that isn't the point of the scripture. The point of the scripture, our eyes should immediately be drawn to Jesus. He says, I know. I know these things. He's not saying, hey, focus on the circumstances, focus on the hardships. No, focus on Jesus. You focus on Jesus, you look for Jesus in the scriptures. And Jesus says, I know. He knows what these guys are facing. He knows the challenges that they're up against. He knows the rejections and the headache and the ridicule. He knows all of these things. He knows what it feels like not to love somebody that doesn't love you back. He knows all things because he's experienced all things. He can sympathize with you because he's gone through these things. Even one of his 12 turned his back on him, betrayed him. Not just one, folks. That's the one we tend to focus on. None of his disciples were there. They all bailed on him. And so Jesus was left by himself, and he went to the cross, and Peter followed outside, and then what did he do? He denied Christ when they said, hey, you were with him. No, 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 no. No, 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 no. Don't, don't, don't associate me with Jesus. They all bailed on him. He was by himself. He knows what it feels like to be betrayed. Maybe you're depressed today. Understand, Jesus was a man of sorrows. Are you grieving? Jesus was acquainted with grief. Do you feel despised and rejected, oppressed and afflicted? So too was Jesus. Understand, when it says he knows, he really does. And that's what makes him the God of all comfort because he knows how to comfort because he's been in your position. And he can comfort you. He comforts the broken and contrite spirit from a personal place of experience, folks. This isn't a God who is distant from on high that says, here, let me sprinkle a little love on your way. He's been where you were, and he knows how to comfort you because he's been through it. Jesus' words to this church are, listen, I know your tribulation and poverty. And what the reality of it is, is that their tribulation is the the is the re reason that they are, they are uh, experiencing poverty. The, the word tribulation means pressure that crushes. It depicts the process of turning grain into flour or grapes into wine. It's used in association in the scriptures with persecution and suffering. These believers were facing tremendous tribulation from their culture. They, didn't, they were facing uh, pressure to worship idols and to worship Caesar. Not only that, but notice they were also facing pressures from the Jews in Smyrna um, who were not Jews. What does that mean? 
That means they were Jews in nationality and not by way of religion. They were not worshiping the, 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 the God of heaven. They weren't worshiping him. They were, they, weren't the Jew, they were the same kind of Jews that Jesus addresses in John chapter 8. They were religious zealots who claimed to be children of Abraham, but were nothing more than children. Uh, they were nothing more than uh, children of their father, the devil. John eight forty four. These folks may have been physical Israel, but they were not spiritual Israel. And and Jesus makes sure he points that out. Isn't that interesting? Those who are supposed to be my representatives are the ones who persecute me. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you? Jesus, the one you're persecuting. Saul, the religious zealot. But here's the reality of Saul who became Paul is that he had a heart for the Lord. These guys, they have a heart for Satan. They're of the synagogue of Satan. Did you catch that in the scripture there? They're of their synagogue of Satan. Listen, what, what I know about Satan is that if he can't stop the church, he'll just join it. And then he'll cause it to implode. And he'll just sow discord amongst the brethren. He'll cause us to infight amongst each other. And that's what we see going on in our culture right now, actually. You see all these churches fighting in, inwardly. All these battles going on because, you know, it's transitions in the pulpit or it's elders and, and leadership going against each other and, and, and congregations who aren't happy with the way that things are being done. And, uh, you know, and it's just all kinds of different things. The enemy is at work. And that is his handiwork, to sow discord among the brethren. Jesus told his disciples, you guys need to stay unified. You guys need to cling together. And his prayer was in the high priestly prayer in John 17 was that they would be one as he and his father are one. That's what he wants for us. He does not want the enemy wiggling his way in to this place and sowing discord. And let me tell you, it's happened. And it will continue to happen. Why? Because God's at work. And when God's at work, the enemy wants to try and thwart God's plan. But guess what? He can't. He can't. God doesn't ever lose. He doesn't ever lose. We might, we might get waylaid and get, but it doesn't catch God off, God off guard. He never loses, folks. Um, you know, he's telling this church that they've got all kinds of things, all kinds of different places of pressure, tribulation, that are causing all kinds of problems in their, in their, in their lives. You know, the, the tribulation that they face in terms of idol worship and all that kind of stuff is the reason why they're poor, because they can't get jobs. You know, you go in the culture like that, and you're like, hey, uh, we're going to need you to, you know, at, at noontime, we're going to just do a little seance to Satan so that we can get some, you know, so our, our business will continue to, or we're going to bow down to this idol so that we can get some, uh, you know, financial blessing from our false God. And you're like, whoa, whoa, I can't do that. Oh, so, so then you're just blackballed. Do you know that happens here in the United States in the state of Utah? State of Utah, and in fact, you get outside of Salt Lake City, which is, it's still highly populated with Mormon people, but you get outside of that where it's 95% or plus, you know, uh, Mormon, you tell them you're a Christian, you ain't getting a job there. You're blackballed. That's what was happening to these guys. You know, they were blackballed. They're, they weren't able to get jobs and such. So Jesus says, listen, I know. I know these things. And, uh, you know, he knows that there's major spiritual forces at work against him, and, and, um, but he's going to see him through it. 
That is also happening today, folks, in different ways. You know, we look at our culture and we look at the, the things going on around us. And um, statistically speaking, I don't know if you know this, every day 13 Christians are killed for their faith in Jesus. 12 Christians are unjustly arrested or imprisoned. And another five are abducted. Pastor Brian just told me this morning that um, 17 Americans were um, abducted in, in Haiti yesterday. Missionaries that were there in Haiti. And Haiti's a fairly um, kind of Christianized culture. And yet there's apparently some gangs have taken over. And, and these 17 people are now been abducted. And no doubt, though, who knows what's happening there. But that's the work of the enemy. Open Doors Ministry, or opendoorsusa.org, you can go to their website, and you can look at the um, what's called the World Watch List, and you can find out where all the persecutions going on in the world. It's mostly in the 1040 window, highly Islamic areas and such. North Korea actually is, is ranked number one for the 20th consecutive year as it relates to persecution of Christians in the most dangerous country to live in. So you can go through that and check it out. It's, you know, you can start praying for these people that live in these, these countries. Listen, persecution has never stopped. I think some people are getting rocked because it's going to start happening or somewhat happening in our country today. Guess what? These guys have been living with this since Jesus came and died and rose again from the dead. The church has always been under persecution. It's nothing new. And in fact, the Open, open Doors president, he said, you know, it's surprising that the gospel continues to go forward, even as hostile as the world is towards the gospel in this day and age, more and more people are getting saved. More and more people are coming to Christ. In fact, the devil's plan to thwart the church being spread, the Jesus Christ, the gospel going forward, is backfiring because, you know, as you know, you've heard it said, you know, the, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. As the church is persecuted, it grows. It just grows more. And that's what's happening in this day and age. Smyrna, Jesus is telling them, listen, I know that you're, I know your tribulation, I know your poverty. But he goes, but you're rich. What does he mean? He's talking about in Christ. If you were with us and you went through the book of Ephesians with us, you know that we've been given the riches of Christ. All that he has are ours. Materially, we might not have much here on earth, but don't let that fool you. You have an inheritance in heaven, folks. It's far greater than anything you could ever even imagine. It would dwarf any kind of earthly wealth, folks. That's why we store up our treasures in heaven, because that's eternal. This is temporary. You can't take this stuff with you. Listen to what Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 8, 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for our sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Our physical wealth can't buy our eternal glory. You can't do it. It's a gift that Jesus has given. He gladly died for it. So, if you're physically poor today, no, and you're in Christ, know that you are still rich. Richer than anybody, uh, anybody on this earth and their, their earthly wealth. Far richer. And so, you know, it's, we're supposed to compare with each other and everything and see where we're at. You know, you're like, hey, I'm richer than you. You know, my dad can beat up your dad. You know, all that stuff, you know, like the Bible says, you know. I'm kidding. Are you guys awake? <laughs> we're like, whoa, we're never coming back here. So the reality of it is that we've been given an incredible gift through Jesus Christ. I think Jim Elliott summed it up well 
when he said, you know, he was, he was offered a high-paying job, and he could have made a ton of money in this world, um, and he was called a fool for walking away from it. And then he goes down, um, down in South America, wherever he was, in the, um, Central America or whatever, and he gets killed for the gospel. But, but he said this. He said, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. And I wonder if, what would happen if that was our mentality. What if we sort of, with reckless abandonment, and I use that term in the correct context, reckless abandonment of, of our lives for Jesus Christ, what would it look like? You ask yourself that question later on this afternoon. Maybe it wouldn't look any different for you, but maybe it would. And so I think that's what we're called to do. Well, not only does Jesus know the pressures of persecution personally, but he also knows the fears that plague us continually. Look at verse 10. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested. And for 10 days, you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death. So Jesus warning this, forewarning this church about uh, there is more suffering to take place. He said, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison and be tested for 10 days. Like Jesus isn't holding back information to these people. He's not going, I don't know if they can handle this. No, he's telling them exactly what's going to happen. Do you know that he's done that with you and I? We have the word of God. He's told us exactly what's going to happen. He's not trying to shield us from any, any circumstances or situations that are coming. He wants us to know. Why? He wants our hearts to be prepared. So he tells this church, the devil is about to throw some of you in prison for 10 days. What does 10 days mean? There's a couple different interpretations of, of what it means, 10 days. Some believe that the 10 days Jesus mentions here are symbolic of 10 years of persecution, which happened by way of the Roman emperor Diocletian. Others believe that it's symbolic of the persecution brought by 10 Roman emperors, beginning with Nero in AD 67 and ending with Diocletian in AD 311. You can read that. You can read about that specifically in the Fox's Book of Martyrs. You can see the, the, the 10 levels of persecution from the Roman, Roman rulers there. Th these both could be very plausible fulfillments. Um, you know, but I, I like to read the Bible literally. Maybe it just means 10 days. Maybe Jesus is just saying, hey, there is... 10 days of persecution coming. You're going to be put into prison for 10 days. Stay the course for those 10 days. Um, and and why, do I, why do I say that? Because he says that they are about to suffer it. it it's present tense. It's like it's present, present future tense, very close. It's going to close proximity. These very people that he's writing to are going to experience this. That's what he's saying. That's why I see it that way. You're feel, feel free to see it the way you do. Notice the negative command here by Jesus, do not fear. And it's negative in the sense that it's something that we are not to do. Do not fear. These believers are not to fear the persecution that's coming. Why? I mean, how could they not? They were going to suffer more. He, he didn't say, you're, you're about to suffer less. He said, you're about to suffer more. And then he says, by the way, don't fear. Jesus, again, wants them to have the right perspective. If you don't have the right perspective, folks, you're going to be way off, way off in life. But Jesus wants us to have the right perspective. He tells, he tells us the principle here of, of the way that we're supposed to live our lives. When it comes to persecution, listen to this. It's in Luke chapter 12, 
verses 4 through 7, it says this. Jesus speaking, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after have nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you uh, whom to fear. Fear him who, after he is killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies, and are not one of them is forgotten, and not one of them is forgotten before God? Why even the hairs of your head are all numbered? Fear not, you are of more value than any sparrows. Here's the perspective Jesus wants us to understand. We have to fear God above everything else, or we will fail miserably. If you fear man more than you fear God, you will fail miserably in your, in your spiritual walk with the Lord. If you're more concerned about the horizontal than you are about the vertical, you will fail miserably. Jesus, the principle here is to keep your heart sold out to the Lord, to keep your fear in the right place. He didn't say, do not fear, period. We're supposed to fear the Lord and the Lord alone. We're not supposed to fear man the Bible tells us that the fear of man is a snare. It's an entrapment, folks. And we all know what it feels like because we've all been there. Maybe you're in that place today. You're fearing man more than you're fearing God. And what does that do to your life? It makes your life a, a bundle of anxiety. A, a, just, you know, you're worried all the time because you're fearing the wrong person. Is your life in his hand? Does Jesus Christ hold your life in, in his hand? He says that if, he, if you're in my hand, nothing can take you from me. You know, the sovereignty of God, he's in control. He knows what he's doing. Whatever he puts me in, he's going to see me through it. That's the reality of it, even if it means that I have to give my life up. Notice Jesus uh, couples the negative command with, with a positive one. He said, do not... Um, now he says, be faithful, something we're supposed to do. Be faithful what? Unto death. Jesus tells us that we are to be willing to give up our own lives to stay true to him, to be faithful to him. Some people are like, whoa, that's kind of radical, isn't it? I mean, give your life up for Jesus. I mean, it's kind of radical. He kind of did that for you, but I guess, you know, if you feel like that's kind of radical, then, you know, I, I hear what you're saying, but, but it doesn't match what he did for you, though, right? It's okay if he gave up his life, but not me. I don't want to do that. Of course. Again, I, I said before in the very beginning, Jesus will never ask you to do something he himself has not done. He will never ask you to do something he, he himself has not already walked through. And if he's walked through it, here's what I know. That he's a ma made a way through it. Even death, folks. Death is the number one feared thing in the world. Do you know that? Death is the number one feared thing in the world. And you know why it's feared? Because most people don't truly believe wholeheartedly. And if we really believe what the Bible says, there is no fear. Because the Bible tells us that Jesus stripped the fear. He took out the stinger from death. Death has no power over us. Why? Because he, he broke the grave, dude. He walked right through the grave. He busted that sucker right in half. So you and I don't have anything to worry about. Here's what I'll tell you. I've been in two places in my life. The first place I started in life was an extreme fear of, of death. The place I'm at right now is uh, I'm, I just want to be faithful. I don't care what it costs. How did I move from one place to the other? Jesus Christ. That's how I got saved, actually. 
you know, I was so afraid to die. And uh, I don't know where it came from or how it happened, but when I was 24 years old, I started waking up in the middle of the night out of nowhere. I don't know why. It just happened. The Lord knows. It was his plan. I started waking up in the middle of the night thinking, oh, I'm, I'm dying. What the heck's going on? I had a couple of friends that had died like, er, like earlier that year. So it was just kind of on my mind like, whoa, 24, they're dying. What the heck? You know, I didn't think we had to worry about that until we were like, you know, 70 or something. You don't think about death when you're young. So 24 years old, the Lord knocks on my door and he says, hey, you're going to die. And I'm like, what? Right now? And I start wor worrying about this. I start, dude, I, I wake up in the morning thinking about I'm dying. I go to bed thinking that I'm dying. It consumes my mind. I'm so afraid to die because I don't know where I'm going. I didn't grow up going to church. I didn't grow up, you know, I heard the gospel in a, a bunch of different contexts is not really in, in, just in passing, really. And what I know is that I'm waking up and I know I'm going to die. And so I, I asked my wife to take me to the hospital a couple times, and she obliges a couple times. And then, then one night, I wake her up, and I'm like, I think I'm dying again. And she's like, go back to bed, you know. <laughs> and uh, I, I love telling the story because she's just like, dude, get over yourself, pretty much. And you know what? Sometimes, like my wife, God knows what I need. Here, here's what I know is God used my wife's personality perfectly in my situation. You know why? Because he had to get me alone, totally alone, 100% alone, because he knew that I would find comfort in something else. So the Lord, he's drawing me, by the way. He draws me into, his, into this place where I'm all by myself. It's just me and him. And one night, again, I, after this is, this is going on a year now. I've gone to all kinds of doctors, all kinds of different places, and they tell me like, you're depressed here, you need these prescriptions, and I wouldn't do any of that stuff. I just suffered through it, you know, and I would literally be in a, sitting at lunch with people, and I would be thinking, like, we're just having a conversation, I'm like, ah, I'm dying right now, and I'm thinking, like, <laughs> like, I'm literally panicking inside, I'm, I'm not kidding, like, I'm gonna die right now in front of these people, fall on the floor, dead, and they're gonna be like, dude, what's, why did you die in front of us like that, you know? <laughs> And I'm so worried about me, right? But, but here's the reality is I finally got to a place where I was so tired of being afraid that I woke up in the middle of the night one night and I just go, you know what? It was like just an epiphany. Yeah, Tim, you're going to die. You will die. You will die. And, and I realized like, yeah, that's going to happen. Like you, you have to come to a place in life where you realize that. You have to accept that because it's a part of life. 24 years old, when I accepted that reality, my next question was, what then? What happens? And I came to Christ in the middle of my bedroom, you know, at midnight by myself, no altar call, just me and the Lord. And I just said, Lord, you know, I know that throughout all that I've heard in this world, that Jesus is the one I need to put my trust in. And so I need to be forgiven for my sins because I, I know I'm a sinner and I need to be forgiven. And I came to Christ in that moment. I went to bed, and I woke up a different person, literally. But here's the thing is, not all of that just went away instantly. I wasn't just like, you know, oh, I'm, I'm okay. I'm going to die now. Cool. You know, hey, we're dying. You know, high-fiving people. No, I wasn't like that. I was still afraid. 
to some degree. But here, there was, this, there, there was this place of comfort in my heart where I knew, like, man, I, I'm, I know I'm going to heaven. Like, I still don't want to die, you know, like now. I don't want to die now, but, but I know that I'm going to heaven. That was the, the place the Lord took me first. And then I immediately got discipled, um, got in the word, got, went, started going to church and started learning about God and stuff. And I was studying the scriptures by myself. And I came across a passage that just spoke so clearly to me. And it's in Philippians 121. It's my life verse. Paul says, to me, to live is Christ, to die is gain. And when I came to that reality of like, hold on a second, what does that say? How is death gain? How is that gain? And so I really started pondering on what does that mean? Like, what, is it, what does it mean that death is gain? And and the Lord started to show me, because then you'll be with me. And when you're in my presence, everything's great. You're perfect. You have no fear. You're in the right context all the time. You don't ever have to question yourself. You don't have to wonder, am I doing the right thing? Am I not doing the right thing? You don't have to worry about your motives or anything like that. It's, you're in perfect state. And then, and then I came across another passage in the Old Testament that, that, that the Lord says that, you know, um, um, Precious in the eyes of the Lord are the death of his saints. The Lord considers it precious because he knows that we're out of this state and we're in, in the state that we're supposed to be in the first place. And so when that, when that sort of truth waved over me and I really kind of understood what that was saying, my fear of death just, walked, it just, just faded completely. And, you know, to this day, so I got saved in 1997 2012, my brother dies of a heart attack at 38. I go to the doctor and find out that I have heart disease, you know, and I have a highly genetic issue with my family, right? So now I'm having to face this again. Like, do I really believe what I'm saying I believe? I'm to, to live as Christ, to die as gain. And I start having these fears again. You know, this is just being real. This is 2012 at this point. I start, oh man, I'm going to die. Probably going to die. My brother just died. Again, same cycle, going to bed thinking about death, waking up thinking about death. And, and all of a sudden, I was like, dude, what am I doing? I have the Lord. What am I worried about? And then I start preaching to myself, like, man, the Bible says that death has no sting. And, and Jesus Christ overcame the grave, so I get to overcome the grave. And all these kind of things, I start preaching to myself, and boom, popped right out of it. Because the reality is you have to stay in the right context. If you're going to live a faithful life to Jesus, you have to stay in the right context. And that means you need to be in his context, in the word of God. And when you start fearing the wrong person, you got to get yourself back in the word and figure out where it is that you need him to talk to you about it. You know, you go back to the word, you go back to Jesus, and he'll walk you through it. And so, you know, um, I, I came to a place where I was like, okay, awesome. And now I'm, now I'm just trying to trust the Lord and continue to, uh, you know, not to say that I would never, ever... Uh, you know, have a bout with, with that kind of fear again because I'm a man. And you know what? I am do my best. But when it comes back, guess what? I know how to fight it. And that's the awesome thing is when you're tempted to fear in these ways, if you've developed the right mindset, you'll be able to deal with it correctly. And the Lord will see you through these things. He's telling this, this church, don't be afraid to die. Don't be afraid to die because if you die, guess what? What's the worst thing that can happen? You die and then what? You're with me. 
That's what he's saying here. Um, you know, and so Jesus wants this church to know that they can be faithful even unto death. And he wants you to know that too. Listen, there are brothers and sisters across the world today that have given their lives up for Jesus. There are people that have laid down their lives to say, you know what? Jesus is more important to me than my own life. And do you know, you can't get any more of the heart of Jesus than that because that's exactly what he did for you. He said, my life is not as important to me as your life is. So I'll lay down my life for you because I love you and I want to be in right relationship with you. And so he's telling this church not from, again, not pie in the sky. This is practical. He's done it. He's been faithful. He walked through death. And he's telling these guys, if you keep your eyes on me, you do not fear man, but you fear me. And you, you continue to walk with me, you'll walk right through death too. You be faithful. You be faithful. He goes on here, and the very last thing he says, he, he kind of gives us the reward for being faithful. And look at verse 10 there. It says, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And the one who, for, uh, the one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Jesus knows the crown that awaits those who are faithful. Let's notice the reward here. He talks about the crown of life. This is known as the Stephanos crown. This is a victor's crown. This is a wreath-type crown that was given to athletes after they won a race. The, the brother James, the brother of Jesus, wrote about this crown in James chapter 1, verse 12. He said, Blessed is the man who remains uh, steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. We're promised, listen, a crown of life if we remain faithful. Jesus goes on at the end of verse 11 here to confirm this reward. He says, the one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Not only do you get the crown of life, but you will not be hurt by the second death. What is the second death? This is a reference to the great white throne judgment that's representative of eternal damnation. So Jesus is telling this church that there is a real place called hell and that people go there. People choose to go there, but they go there and they spend eternity there. Um, and it will, it will, this is the second death. You'll die. Every person will die here on earth and then they'll be raised and they will stand before God and give a judgment of their life. If you're not a believer, you will give a judgment of every sin that you've ever committed in your life. You don't want to stand before God like that. If you're a believer, the only thing that God will judge are your works. How much of it, what percentage of your works did you do for Jesus? And what percentage of it did you do for yourself? And then you're given a, a, a jewel for your crown in heaven. Some of us will just have like a half a jewel. Some of us will have a full gigantic crown. Probably the ones that are least likely, you know, are probably the ones that will have the most jewels. You know, the ones that are quiet in what they're doing. Prayer warriors and people that are working behind the scenes on their knees before the Lord. But he says that, you know, it, it, there is a judgment coming for people who refuse to accept Christ. Revelation chapter 20, verses 14 through 15. Then death and Hades, this is 
after um, Jesus has ruled and reigned on the earth and all of that for a thousand years. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if any, anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. This is hell. This is what hell is. Hell, the lake of fire, same thing. Eternal damnation, same thing. This is a place where people will spend eternity dying but never die. You spend eternity dying, but will never die. Well, why would God do that? Listen, I'm not God. I don't know. But here's what I know. We don't understand the weight of our sin either. We don't get how deep, deeply we've sinned against the Lord. And what I know is he's just in what he's doing. And he extends the hand of grace to every single person. And he says, I don't want that for you. I want you to stand before me and I want to usher you into eternal life with me. That's my heart for you. God wills that no man would perish, but all would come to repentance. He gives you an opportunity to come to Christ. Everybody has that opportunity. And people who receive him, they're given, they're given, uh, they, they overcome the second death. You don't have to worry about it. You're in eternity with God. But if you don't, you should worry about it. And if you're not sure, you should make sure today. You should put your trust in Jesus Christ because it's the only way out of that. There's only two places you can go after you die, folks. It's either in eternity with God or it's in eternity without him. We're all eternal beings and we will all live forever. The question is, where will you live forever? Jesus wants you and I to know no matter what it is that we go through in this life that he's gonna see us through it. There are no excuses to, to, to depart from his will. There is no excuse. He strengthens us. He equips us. He gives the ability for us to do everything that we need to do. Um, everything we, we need for life and godliness is given in Christ Jesus. What we need to do is be faithful to that. And when we're faithful to that, he who endures till the end shall be saved. Here's what you need to know is that salvation is not a result of enduring. That is the, that's the result of your salvation. It's not how you gain salvation, but it's the fact that you have salvation. That's what Jesus meant. So the question is today, if you die today, if you, know that, if you die today, do you know that you know that you know that you're gonna go to heaven? You need to ask yourself that question as we close here today because the Lord does not want this for you. He wants to put a crown of life on your head and he wants you to be in eternity with him forever. Listen, if you're not walking with the Lord right now and you're a Christian, you need to turn, repent, and come back to Christ today. You're not guaranteed tomorrow. You want the Lord to say, well done, good and faithful servant. Listen, um, as we put in perspective here, you know, this life is not about this life. It's about the next life. So we want to live our life right now with everything that we have towards Jesus. Don't quit your job and, and move to Jerusalem, please. That's not what I'm saying. Jesus needs you right where you are. He needs you in your workplace. He needs you in your neighborhood. He needs you where you are so that he can do his work through you. But you have to be faithful. He puts you in places, but you have to be faithful in those places. He won't do that for you. You have to do that. And the way that we do that is staying grounded in the word of God, being filled with the Holy Spirit, and keeping our eyes on the Lord. Amen? Father, we thank you so much for this time together. We pray, Lord, as we close now, that uh, you would just draw our hearts to yourself. We pray that, um, 
that by your spirit, Lord, you would speak to every person in this place. And you know the reality of where we sit with you. If we're in Christ, if we're not in Christ, if we are backslidden, if we're being faithful, Lord, you know all of those things. And your Holy Spirit is at work in and through us even right now. And we ask you, Lord, to, to just come by your Spirit and do this work in our hearts and, and just draw us to yourself now. Will you speak to those who are dead but think they're alive, Lord? Will you speak to those who are backslidden, Lord, who are not being faithful to what you've called us to as Christians, that we would repent this morning and turn back to you? Father, for those who are being faithful, will you just, may they receive this exhortation from Jesus just to keep pressing in and pressing on. So, Lord, we just want to leave uh, just this moment up to you, whatever it is that you desire to do in our hearts. And so we just, as we continue to pray, if, if you're not sure that you're in Christ this morning and everybody in this place is praying right now, the Lord's tugging at your heart and he's saying, you need to, Give your heart up to me today because you're not sure and you can be sure. The Lord wants you to just commit your life to him. If that's you, if you just lift your hand up, I want to pray a prayer with you. Don't be afraid. The Lord says, don't fear, man. Fear the Lord. If you're not sure this morning, lift your hand up. Just give your life to Christ. Is there anybody here this morning that needs a relationship with Jesus? He died to give you eternity. He does not want you to stand before him as your judge for all of your sin. Thanks for listening. You can hear more of Pastor Tim's studies through the Word of God on our website, www.calvaryofcolumbia.org. Thanks again for listening, and we hope you'll join us again as we continue to study God's Word.